Hello, everyone. My name is Brendan Sieco. I'm the founder and CEO of QZM. First off, I want to say thank you, everyone who is joining us today, as well as say thank you to our panelists, Ryan and Kat. I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy and optimistic throughout these very, very difficult and uncertain times. For those of you who have tuned into our past webinars, it's great to see you again. And for all of our newcomers, I want to say welcome. We hope that today's dialogue is helpful and informative. This is the fourth in a series of conversations we've been facilitating on engaging audiences during coronavirus. Over the past few weeks, more than 10,000 people have joined us from across the globe, and there are over 3,000 people here with us today. Week after week, as we're all seeing, we're faced with new challenges and new questions as we navigate the choppy and very murky waters. It hasn't been smooth sailing, but we're all here doing our best. These are unprecedented times, and most of us have been catapulted into a world of trial and error, figuring things out faster than ever, and doing everything we can to overcome these challenges with really limited resources. It's in moments like these that we come together to share ideas, to support each other. And with all of this uncertainty, there's at least one thing I'm certain of. It's that the museum, art, and cultural community has stepped up to help each other and to help their community. So today's theme for the conversation is how to craft meaningful and mindful digital content in the age of coronavirus. And now I would love to introduce our special guests. We have Ryan Dodge. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ryan. Ryan is the head of digital experiences at the Canadian Museum of History and the Canadian War Museum. Over a decade in digital strategy, he previously held roles at Royal Ontario Museum as well as CBC. Canada's national broadcaster. Active in the global museum technology community, Ryan has presented internationally and has been a member of the New Media Consortium's Horizon Report Museum Edition expert panel and sat on boards of ICOM Canada as well as the Virtual Museum of Canada. And in his spare time, and it sounds like, Ryan, you have a lot of spare time being on boards and advisory expert committees and so on and so forth. Ryan is a father of three, and he likes to keep his kids busy doing the right thing, visiting museums and getting lost in nature. Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. Sure. Happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you. And then we have Kat Harding. Uh, Kat is the public relations and social media manager for the North Carolina Museum of Art. She's presented at Museum Computer Network and the North Carolina State Public Relations Day Conference. Her work has been featured on the National Arts Marketing Project blog, won multiple Riley PR Society Awards, and she is the recipient of the 2019 Public Relations Professional of the Year Award in Riley. Rally, sorry. Rally. Rally, Rally. Some city. <laughs> Some city somewhere. Um, sorry, it's my Canadian accent that I'm going for. Rally Riley story. Um, she's on the board of the Rally PR Society and WHUPLP radio station. And in her free time, she's a DJ at WHUP and a writer for Midtown Magazine. And prior to all of this, she was a publicist and freelance writer in the music industry over in Nashville. Thanks for joining us, Kat. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, I hope I can pronounce my own name correctly. Um, I'm Brendan Sieco, founder of QZAM. I'll be your host and moderator for today's discussion. So let's get down into the questions. Let's get this dialogue started. Ryan, in last week's conversation, our special guests and attendees talked about and celebrated your checklist for how to build high impact content. You put this out back in 2016 during your time at the Royal Ontario Museum. It sounded like something that could really help museums that are just starting to get started with social media and digital content and also assessing what type of content to focus on today. Four years later, do you think that checklists and frameworks like this are still applicable and important to put together as maybe a baseline for guiding our approach to content? Yeah, for sure. I think it's always important to remind yourself of why you're doing what you're doing. And that's really what that checklist was about. And a lot of people I think are putting in the chat for the link, and I'm sure you guys will share that as well. I'm, I'm more than happy to share that. I think one of the things about our community, people doing this type of work, is they're really open to sharing and, and learning from each other and, and building off of each other. So I'm really flattered that Emily and Hillary Morgan talked about that last week. It really 
again, flattered that they actually used it or iterated off of it. I think because the world moves so quickly, there's an opportunity there to move quickly along with it. But we always have to remember the unique context um, of our institutions and our collections and, and the expertise that we can share with the world. And so having a checklist to really focus in and help you with your decision-making process, I think is really important. Like you said, that one's really old and I've since moved on from the ROM. So I don't know if they're still using it, but I hope that they've iterated off of it and built a new one or have switched it up to meet the needs of their community now. But yeah, anyone that's looking to use it or, or to use it as a base from which to, to build on, I'm more than happy to share that. I think a lot of the things, like we're so inundated with opportunities that we could jump on. And the one thing it does, it really helps you to, to take a step back and think about what you could do and why you're doing it. And that's a really important question is asking why. I think we often don't think about that, why we're producing something or who is this for? And, and that's what my goal was with that checklist. That's great. And I, and I think one of the things that I love about it, aside from it as a resource then, but it as a resource now, is it shows the value of if you build something internally how the ripple effect or the value can be felt immediately, but also many years later. It's very encouraging to see that people are sharing their ideas and sharing their resources. And that's something which was, again, baseline content guideline can be helpful to people today. And I'm sure there are many things like that. So I have a question for, for you, Kat. From a public relations perspective, what has been your approach at the North Carolina Museum of Art? How has the museum's PR and communication strategy the language you use, the voice, how has that all changed over the past few weeks? And how are you ensuring it's mindful of what your community might be experiencing right now in their own lives? Yeah, so I would say, obviously, the focus of what we're talking about has changed quite a bit, where we used to be talking about events and exhibitions, as well as our art, of course, but now it's very much like, is the museum even open? Where can people go? We still have a park that's open. So we're still communicating what we know when we know it in a very relatable and knowledgeable way. We have had more input right now from higher state officials. The NCMA is partly state run. So we're having to go all the way up the chain to the governor in some cases. And that's very different than how we normally would do it. But yeah, it's a lot has stayed the same. We're trying to connect. We're not trying to bombard people with our communications. We want to be a solace and an escape, but we do have urgent information to communicate with people about events, closures, what's open in the park, and that kind of stuff. So it's mostly the same core, relatable, knowledgeable, get the facts out, but a little bit different in that it's probably a little bit more formal than it has been before. Thank you. Thank you. And how do you or do you see any changes to the voice of the, the brand of the museum? Has that been changing. I know you mentioned it's been formal. How do you ensure that your mission still feels the same, sounds the same, is communicated in, in a way that people are familiar with? Yeah, I don't think it's changed that much, especially on social media. Social media is a bit more lighthearted. Once we're getting out the pertinent information, you know, you can't come to the museum right now, then it's back to content as normal that you can experience online. We're the People's Museum of North Carolina. We're here for everyone, and that has not changed. That's great. I love that you're the People's Museum. I, th I think that's amazing. So those questions to both of you. Lately, we've been hearing a lot of advice along the lines of simply listen to your audience, support your community. What does your audience, or what do you think your audience wants from you right now? What do you think they need from you right now? And how do you go about determining this? Go ahead, Kat. <laughs> okay. So I think we're all pretty stressed out, probably a little freaked out and scared. So we're kind of keeping that in mind when we're putting out all of this content. So we asked our audience, what is your favorite piece of art in the museum? And then we've been building some deep dive content pieces each week about them. So it's movie recommendations because we're all stuck at home. It's music, it's meditation very short bites of content that people can experience in just five to 10 minutes instead of an hour long. We're feeling especially for parents who are all suddenly teachers. So we're not trying to inundate people with, oh, you need to sit down and spend two hours with our content. You can experience it all week, little bites when you can. It's great for all ages. 
coloring sheets, just a lot of options in a cohesive package based on your very favorite art. So I think as long as people are keeping in mind that everyone is just so much more frazzled than normal, time is really stretched thin, that, the con that will really help influence the content that you're putting out. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've always thought about um, is the difference between an audience and a community and really understanding that your digital community is, is that it's a community and, and an audience is someone that you speak to, you perform for, you lecture for, that sort of thing. And, and to me, it's always been, we're in this together, we're in a community and how can we serve the community? What can we provide them with? What does our community need and what can we provide them? And so I've always kind of looked at it in that relationship and Kat's right by providing all of those resources, thinking about what do parents need right now in our community? What do people who may be home alone or something what, what do they need um, right now and so just just things like that I think is really important to to step away from what you're what you're normally used to doing and and sort of rethink about how you're talking with your community excellent thank you and Ryan kind of shifting gears a little bit here one of my favorite museum projects from the past few years was during your time at Royal Ontario Museum when you put your t-rex on tinder Projects like these, I think, show a certain level of creativity, agility, and risk tolerance that might be encouraged in a meaningful way to re-engage the public's attention in a couple months as we re-enter or enter the new normal. Can you talk through that initiative? How did you come up with it? What did you learn from that project that still rings uh, true today? Yeah, that one was a pretty fun one. Just to put that in the context, we were at the time, it, it was centered around an event that we used, that we ran at the ROM, we still, the ROM still runs, called Friday Night Live. And, and when that event first started in like 2012, 2013, we had lots of engagement on social media. There was lots of tweets flying back and forth and, and lots of user-generated content um, that we were aggregating and, and sharing and things like that. It was really, really high levels of engagement for us. And as people's sharing habits, started to change people moved to doing more on snapchat and more with instagram stories and things like that we saw our engagement numbers dip so i spent a good deal of time walking around the event and trying to figure out what people were doing and where they all went they were there physically but they weren't there digitally so how do we make sure that we're connecting with them i saw lots of people on their phones but what were they actually doing and so I've been married for 10 years and didn't really do the whole online dating thing, but I saw people doing this swipe thing. And I was like, what is that? So I went to some of my colleagues and they said, oh, that's Tinder. And just kind of got the idea, wouldn't that be fantastic if a museum object would engage with people in this space? How unexpected would that be? And, and what would that look like? And so just thinking through how that would work, wrote the brief and obviously sold it up the chain of command and made people understand that this was an experiment. It's a pilot project. And the base, the goal really was to enter into conversations with, with our community. And so I did a whole on my Medium account. There's a whole post on why we did it and then the follow up. And I have to give a shout out to Jacqueline Waters, who um, did a lot of work actually putting a, a voice and a personality to Teddy. She was the one that wrote all the, the witty one-liners and, and things like that and did a fantastic job giving Teddy a, a real presence on the, on the platform. But there was no marketing ROI. didn't push people to sell t to buy tickets to the event. It was a true experiment to see if people would talk to us and to, and to see what kind of reaction we would get from people. And it was a really fun way to build some engagement. That's great. And, and, I feel like that's prompted a lot of conversation in our chat box today about other platforms that museums are experimenting with today. You've experimented with uh, Tinder, which is probably on one side of the spectrum, given museums do not experiment with Tinder. So a lot of people are asking um, about using Snapchat, and a lot of people are asking about using TikTok. Do you have any, any thoughts yeah, on that? Or? So, so I want to give a shout out to the social team at, at the CBC, at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. We have that team. We had a person who was solely, their, their main job was to work with Snapchat and to repurpose CBC content directly for Snapchat. And one of the big goals at CBC is reaching a younger demographic. CBC was really good at reaching older demographics, but really needed help um, reaching those younger demographics. And... The person who was doing this work, was she was incredible at, at sourcing the content from across CBC's massive um, piles of content. 
and finding a way to repurpose it for specifically for the Snapchat platform. And the numbers were ridiculous. They were routinely reaching 18 to 24 year olds. And I don't know if you know Snapchat demographics, but they only do, they do 18 to the younger demographics are really cut up and then it's 35 and above. So they group everyone 35 and above as one big group. So it was really great to see that engagement with those younger demographics and to be reminded that you don't have to dumb down content for younger demographics. You don't have to write in a certain way um, that younger demographics will engage with content that, that you produce as long as it's packaged for the platform and, and in a way that that is engaging. Well, it's interesting to think about all of these new channels, distribution channels, new avenues to get either your mission, your brand, your content, your voice Mm -hmm. into as many lives as possible. And one that I want to talk about today is Zoom. Zoom's daily active users have jumped from 10 million to over 200 million over the past few months. This video communication platform, which we're actually using right now, for this webinar has quickly risen in popularity. It's now part of many people's personal and professional lives. And a growing number of museums and aquariums and zoos are using this as another avenue to promote their brand and content in a completely new way. And I saw that the North Carolina Museum of Art recently posted and promoted some Zoom backgrounds. So I want Kat to tell us a little bit about that where the inspiration come from, how it's been, what some of that content looks like, and what some of the basic steps an organization might take to take advantage of this distribution channel. Yeah, definitely. That idea actually came from a member of our development team. I think probably the very first week we all started working remotely. And yeah, it was just a great opportunity to listen to different ideas that come in from all directions. I know we're all going through that now where suddenly everyone is on the digital content team and you're having to really filter through stuff. So we finally were able to get to it. We had our photographers help us pick some great images of our campus and the collection and then crop them just to the right size. So all you have to do is download them and stick them in the background. But yeah, it's been a huge success. We were in two national art publications, our local newspaper. It exploded on social media. It's some of the best numbers I've gotten this year, actually. And then just a shout to some other museums that did it, the Wellington Museum, the Children's Museum of South Dakota, theirs has dinosaurs in the background. So that's Sweet. really nice. Uh, and then, dinosaurs. Yeah, the <laughs> Smithsonian American Art Museum also has done some. I think they're just a really fun way that you're still somewhat experiencing the collection and the resources that your you know, entity has, but it's, it's not driving you to the website. It's not driving you anywhere else. It truly is just something nice to look at while you're on all of these calls all day. So yeah, it's been great. That's great. Thank you for sharing all of that information. And I loved hearing that it came from the development team. Mm -hmm. And I think that just shows how important cross-department collaboration is right now and sharing these ideas. And if you see something, say something. I know that quote's kind of out of context, but in, in a lot of ways, and I kind of laugh at this, Zoom backgrounds are backgrounds. They're just JPEGs that are sized to your screen in the same way your wallpaper, your desktop wallpaper is set up. So they're really a low lift for apartments. You don't even necessarily need to hire a designer. Um, You're just taking your best images and maybe popping your logo on the bottom left or right. And then your brand becomes a part of someone's business meeting or a family reunion. A colleague of mine calls those family resumians. (laughs) Um, if you want to grab, grab that and run with it, but I I think that's awesome. And, and Ryan, do you have any, do you have anything to add to the zoom life we're living? Yeah. Well, I mean, we used, we, a bunch of us organized like a global drinking boat museums event a couple of weeks ago and we used zoom and that's the, I see in the chat, there's people talking about zoom bombing and that's sort of a concept that I had no idea about until this happened, until it actually happened during the event. And so it's, it's interesting to see that Zoom has actually changed their settings. So they've instituted the waiting room right off the bat and things like yeah. that. So they're aware of it. There's different paid plans that are pretty reasonable for, for the services that you get to lock it down a little bit. Yeah. 
hold like a good virtual visit or a, a webinar or something like that. I love when museums, you know, of course, there's always going to be that, that pressure to push people back to your website and, and get further conversions and things like that. But I love when museums show some personality. I love when museums do things outside of the box and really recognize what their communities are doing, what everyone is doing right now. They're on Zoom. How do we insert museums into the activities that people yeah. are doing? That's, that's kind of, that's a lot of the things that I get excited about when I see museums doing. Yeah, and I love the aspect of even tying the narrative around the backgrounds to some mission-centric initiatives. Looking at the Smithsonian American uh, Art Museum, their Zoom backgrounds are very much connected to their open access initiative. And I see Amy Fox has posted a a link to that on our chat box, and it shows how all of these things can be woven together back, back to your mission. I do want to say that we're going to be posting sometime today, a blog post about the different live video and webinar software that's available today. There's a lot of discounted nonprofit rate availability. And so we've done a little overview to talk about who's using what, how they're using it with backgrounds and, and beyond backgrounds, just to be helpful guide for people. But I think it all comes down to meeting people where they are and now they're all in their homes. And if you can weave your brand and your mission into that, that's a great opportunity and a really clever low lift. So we have a, a question from Catherine Rosati from the Harborfront Center in Toronto, Ontario. How do you reach audiences when there isn't equal access to internet to view online content or content in general? Yeah, that's a tough one, right? Especially now that people don't have access to places where they could get free internet, like public libraries and community centers and and places like that. So it's tough numbers in Canada showed that about 90% of, of people in Canada had access to the internet, but I think that did include, you know, access to public libraries. So it it is tough. And you have to be aware that with any content you're producing, you're not going to reach everyone, especially now with everyone sort of focused in the online space and everyone pushing so much content stuff you do, you know, probably will get lost in the shuffle. If it's really well executed, it might not. But I think it's it's important to know that you're not always going to hit a home run. It's always a bit of a risk and there's other things you can do to reach people. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Definitely, we're understanding that not all of our content will be used by everyone, especially as kids are now being schooled at home. Growing up, we only had one computer, three kids, two parents. All of us would, if this happened then, be trying to work on just the one computer. So other, we're sending out content that maybe you can access on your TV or Netflix, your, these Spotify playlists, some things like that, mm-hmm. that maybe you can experiment with on a different device. But yeah, it's really tough. And we've talked about trying to get like physical coloring sheets, activity kits, whatever in the hands of people, especially while our park is open. But then that requires our employees to go back and we're just trying to be super safe, not touch anything. And it's really, really hard. And it's something that we're definitely aware of that not everyone is going to be able to access everything. But yeah, again, we're definitely aware of it. That's helpful. It points to this is a really challenging reality because when We're talking about access to internet and broadband and media. We do make assumptions, of course, but then the backup plan or the alternative formats are going to be physical media. And when physical media is opened up to uncertain risk and risk for your employee and risk for the recipient, it does put you in a challenging situation. But maybe there's some people on this panel that have worked in radio and there's some people on this panel that worked in broadcast where there are maybe opportunities for radio during times like these. If that was a concern for a community, I think that could be a viable um, avenue to reach audiences. Mm-hmm. So past guests on our webinars have emphasized that consistency and compassion are two of the most important things to keep in mind when communicating with your audience. How do you go about communicating in a compassionate and meaningful way today? How are your organizations dealing with that? I'll start. (laughs) I would say we're really only communicating what we know. So we're not making any promises. We're not talking about future events and exhibitions. We have a summer concert series. All of that is obviously on hold. And I think that helps 
be like consistent, compassionate, because we're not making any promises that we're going to go breaking. And of course, it would be out of our control. People are really understanding what's happening with businesses right now. But it's just, we can only tell you what we know. And it's X, Y, and Z. So we're all facing these same challenges. And I think what I've seen some backlash with retailers who were basically saying, we're going to pay all of our employees during the shutdown when the shutdown was two weeks. And now it could be two months and they're laying people off and you just can't make any promises right now. So you have to focus on the very immediate, what you know, and then, and you, you need to be able to say, look here for more information if you don't have it as it comes along. Yeah, it all just goes back to being a good community member, right? Like you said, Kat, we're, for the most part, the museums aren't, aren't the experts in infectious diseases. And so making sure people, if they do ask those questions, that they're, they're, that they're given the right uh, information or, or sent to the right um, resources. I'm a bit sort of outside this. I don't work directly with our, our PR and social media team, and, but they've been doing a great job. I think just focusing on the content and, and talking about what the museum has to offer. And so just going back to what the mission of the museum is and talking to people about history. And, and so, so that's what I've seen the focus been from our museum so far. And it's been great. Thank you. Well, I want to take a quick, quick minute. We're, we're about a half an hour in I just want to take a moment to announce that starting this Friday, we'll be hosting a weekly digital happy hour called Muse, Zoos, and Clues. We'll recap some of our favorite museum campaigns, our posts from the week, do some trivia, talk about some of the topics we're discussing now in a little bit more depth, um, but also have some lighthearted conversation. And to mix things up a little, we'll be inviting a few attendees onto the digital stage to participate. So you can register early or email hello at QZM if you want to be a guest. Because Ryan awesome. and Kat can't have all the fun. That's right. Ryan and Kat yes. can't have all the yeah. fun. You guys want to have That some sounds fun. awesome. Jump on that in. sounds that awesome. Sounds great. I'm, I'm so gonna make totally, uh, put that in my calendar for sure. Totally an experiment. <laughs> um, I'm letting the cat out of the bag. We do want to maybe convince another Canadian who works in the museum space who was a part of the one hit wonder Canadian rock band Lem who wrote the songs. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're inviting him. Uh, Still my sunshine. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's going to be a social media campaign launched on uh, April 21st called Hashtag Museum Sunshine. What a coincidence. That's Have a fun little conversation, maybe a little music (laughs) about it. Um, Anyways, back on track, back on track. Let's go back. Let's be serious now. Okay. So actually ultra serious. A few days ago, I read an interesting and sobering article in the Financial Times that claimed there's no room for bullshit. By the way, it's the first time I'm swearing on these webinars, so Mm -hmm. I apologize. There's no time for bullshit in the time of coronavirus. Speaking clearly and honesty in a crisis cuts through the guff, end quote. But museums typically aren't so blunt or brisk in their communication. How do you approach this in a mindful way? How do you strike a balance? Because my sense is a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down in the most delightful way. Museums are always trying to be optimistic in their messaging. And I want to also loop in a question from the community on top of this, which pairs very nicely. Um, ben Fast from the Alberta Museum Association over in Edmonton, Alberta, So how can you mindfully and sensitively tell communities about changes in their organization past that you've just closed? For example, the staff have been laid off or services in the future might change. How do you address that? With staff gone and the majority of activities ended, many museums are struggling to act out of their mission. And I think identifying this is important to start looking at while being open and transparent. So I thought that paired really nicely with some of the things that I was reading and, and also Ben's awesome and, and the work of the Alberta Museum Associations and, and the constituents. I think it's a really valid and, and relevant and timely question to bring up. Yeah, I think it's pretty similar to what I was saying before. We're only communicating what we know. Our restaurant closed. It, it did not turn to takeout only or anything like that. We don't know when it will reopen because we don't know when the whole museum will reopen. We had some great exhibitions going on. We're hoping they're extended, but, and we think they are, but we haven't communicated that yet just because we don't have anything definite. So again, no promises that we're going to wind up breaking, just the facts 
And that's really one way to cut through the kind of flowery stuff and really like, it's not helpful. So what's helpful is people knowing exactly what, what we know and us just saying, we're closed. Here's all of our online resources and trying to make that appeal to them. And like I said, all businesses are facing super hard decisions and it's just day by day. We know People are losing their jobs. We've been really careful about asking for donations right now. We haven't started that yet. The very first event we canceled was our biggest fundraiser. And we're just very mindful of when we get back into fundraising, what is that going to look like? How do we position ourselves as an important escape for people who suddenly have had their income cut? And yeah, it's just truly communicating what we know and and not making promises that we're going to wind up breaking. Yeah, I think one of the things that museums enjoy is a really high level of trust with their communities. Among other industries, there's this sort of trust that people give museums. And and I think we need to be really aware of how fragile that can be. And the decisions that we make now can really affect not only our reputations, but also our relationships with our community. And again, echo what Kat's saying, stick to the facts, be honest. I think the worst thing you can do is try to shuffle some things under the rug. If people are savvy, they're smart, they're media savvy, they're going to find out if decisions were made. And I think a lot of people are, are watching us right now. They're watching what we're doing. And there's a lot of difficult stories coming out of museums. But I think the museums that have really shared their tough news well have done it in an honest way. And they've said, look, here's, here's what's happening. And hopefully this won't be long-term and, and all those things. I think it's really important that we do right by our communities. And also to add on to that, just who is this message coming from? So for us, a new director joined us a little over a year ago. And so a lot of this communication is obviously it's being written and brainstormed and whatever from the marketing and communication team, but it is coming out from her. It is coming out from her email address. She is available for questions and concerns from visitors and other audiences that we serve. Yes, as the PR manager, I can tell you something, but it means a lot coming from the very top person. So who can you rope in if you need to, to have these conversations with people? And it should, these decisions are coming from the top. And so a lot of the communication needs to be coming from them. That's, that's really helpful. And, and I saw the videos on your website and I saw the videos in your newsletter and I thought it was wonderful that your director is using this as an opportunity to get personal and be mm-hmm. human and, and connect with your, your audience, with your members, your donors, your community. I'm really happy that both of you touched on the fundraising and membership solicitation aspect of this because I'm seeing in the chat box, a lot of people are, are having questions about that, the timing about it, the optics of it, especially when a variety of things are, are taking place. And we've started to host conversations with people who work in membership every Monday. And there's been a lot of interesting perspectives on how this has been a really challenging and dynamic moment for membership departments that are trying to navigate the uncertainty about when they'll extend, how long they'll extend, what they'll ask for in terms of asks for donation and other such means of support. And frankly, there is no easy answer to that. I'm glad to hear that you're thinking about this when it comes to all bits of your communication. So Ryan, you work for a federally funded institution and Kat, you work for a state affiliated institution. We've heard a lot from people that work at government-affiliated organizations, that they're limited by very long approval periods, red tape across most departments. How do you think organizations can tackle or streamline some of that challenge when coronavirus represents such a need for rapid communication today? I don't know if everyone out there is like me, but my level of meetings have doubled or quadrupled in, in the time that we've all, that I've been working from home. And I think as a federal institution, there's definitely a mandate from the federal government. We have processes and things like that, that we, we have to follow. But I think the staff internally have been really great at, at keeping the lines of communication open, sharing ideas and collaborating. And, and so I think when there is something that needs to be jumped on or discussed internally, the first thing someone does is, is send out a quick note to have a quick chat and we we'll go from there. It's really difficult to change processes in this time, but I think Scott said something about that in your first webinar about 
Maybe this is an opportunity for museums to look at their processes and rethink how they do things. Not every every museum has that luxury. Some do, some don't, but I agree with them and, and it is a good opportunity to look at things and see if there's, there's a way to revamp how you're communicating internally and how you can quickly leverage what's happening when it does. That's great. And Kat, I know early on you mentioned that for official communications, you're getting a lot of direction from the governor level, but for social media, you have, it seems like a lot of flexibility around the voice and the content. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Cause I think a lot of organizations, and I know when we're talking about government mandate and policy, it's a little bit different, but I'd, it sounds like we would love to live in a world where for official correspondence, comes from the top is very formal but when it comes to social media loosening the guidelines so mm-hmm. that light-hearted human touch can take place i'd love to hear a little bit more about that dynamic and how you're you're navigating it um, in north carolina yeah totally so on the social side when we were open there is a focus on visiting and coming here in exhibitions and events and things like that. But now that all of that is closed, basically what I have at my disposal is our collection. And then we're all kind of doing the same stuff. We're all watching Tiger King. So it was a great opportunity just to like get some little jokes in there where again, I'm not selling anything. I'm highlighting a piece in our collection, but I'm connecting it to something very much like (laughs) of the times. And that one has done really well. I think a lot of us are on social media a lot and a lot more than we normally are. So I'm just keeping an eye on the meme formats. I had a really good success with one where it was March 1st versus April 1st. And it was a beautiful landscape. And then April 1st was the eruption of Vesuvius. (laughs) So some things with that with social media where it's just quick, it's tongue in cheek. We're keeping in mind too, I've been a little bit wary about posting a lot of work from home content because I know a lot of people are not working from home. They don't have the luxury. So um, keeping that in mind, folks that have lost their jobs, just things like that. But If it's something that is so deep in the cultural mindset right now, like Tiger King or another show, 90 Day Fiance, I did Museum Bachelor uh, with our statue of Bacchus, things like that can be just a really easy thing that gets a lot of eyeballs, a lot of engagement, but the, the stakes are fairly low. So that's nice to throw in there. It is really great to see when museums do engage with that type of thing and also show a bit of personality. On personality, someone on the webinar wants to know if we can have a 90 day fiance webinar. For that, I say, if you're at a museum, this is open territory. Go for it. Run with yeah. it. You're the first museum to host the 90 day fiance. Oh awesome. I just wanted to shout out Russell Doran's work on who's at the V&A in Dundee and in Scotland. He's done a lot of writing about whether or not to show personality in uh, interesting digital presence. Just Google Russell's name and and medium. I believe you'll find when he's interviewed a lot of people from uh, the Mm -hmm. community who either who do it both ways. So it's an interesting discussion and and interesting post about whether or not you should show some personality in in your digital presence, I believe. Cool. And we'll, we'll tweet that out. So on going down this path around personality on brand and communication and social media, Kat, you've worked in music, broadcast, journalism, music having a lot of personality and music in Nashville having a lot of personality. What are some of the approaches from your past in music and broadcast, radio, journalism that you think have come in handy or helped you hone your skill to help your museum through this really challenging era? Yeah, I'd say that there's really just two important factors here. The first is communicating the facts. So if it was an album release, who's releasing it? When's it coming out? Where can I get it? That kind of stuff. And then with museums, are you open? What's available for me to look at? What can I still have fun with, et cetera? And then on the other side of that is the human connection. So why should you look at our stuff? Or why should you listen to that album? What are you going to get out of this? Even if, you know, it's educational, a moment of relaxation, a Mm -hmm. deeper connection to who knows what, like whatever. Um, Those are the two important parts is everything has to be there. You have to be able to find it with the facts Mm -hmm. and then you have to be able to relate to it. And so that's been nice with the content we're releasing now with our weekly recommend series is that 
do you like music? Do you like movies? Do you need to relax? Do you have kids around? Do you, whatever, we have something for you. Um, and here's where you find it. So those are just the two important pieces for any kind of communication yeah. is like facts and connection. Well, it sounds like you guys have a culture of taking into consideration the context. Cause I remember it was a couple of years ago when you rolled out your audio guide experience, your app, there were date night, lunchtime, work week. There are all sorts yeah. of really contextual down to taking into consideration the context of the person so that it would be really meaningful or a little bit more personalized uh, for that context. So it sounds like there's something special about the yeah. approach that you have down in North Carolina. All of these cultural sites and institutions, mm -hmm. we do serve tons of audiences from school groups, retirees are mostly yep. our docents, yep. the general public. So it's a great opportunity to hit tons of people if you're able to reach them. I have a question for, for both of you. you know, this has been weighing on my shoulders and a lot of people's shoulders for the last couple of weeks. I know many things have been weighing on our shoulders, but Annual reports have historically included key metrics like annual visitor count. And with all of the closures and the uncertainty around when venues will be opening back up again, there's no question that our 2020 audience numbers are going to be significantly impacted. Right now, remote and digital engagement has become really the only way to engage the public when you think about it. And it is 2020, the year that digital engagement, social media, so on and so forth, becomes a key metric across the entire museum, art and cultural sector, uh, and other sectors as well. And on our annual reports, are we going to start including digital engagement metrics like website views? I know that I've seen the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, where I've been involved for, for many years in their annual reports, they would include how many people visited their website and views of that nature. And I imagine probably... Less than 1% of, of cultural organizations are doing that type of reporting on a, an annual report level. What do you think about that? Do you think that this year is going to be the year that these metrics are front and center, reviewed by the board, reviewed by the public, discussed internally, externally, and beyond? I would say these kind of numbers absolutely should be in the annual reports, not only just as a check-in from year to year of how your content is doing, but it's also, I think, going to be really important for funding later, especially if you can talk about how many people you've reached with the platform that you have now, but we need some money to improve it, to reach even more. All of that is going to become very important. We're working on a, a whole new website overhaul. So knowing how many people are visiting and what pages are they going to, what platforms need better embedded, that kind of thing. It's crucial. And especially right now when we have no physical visitors, our park is still open for now, but no indoor physical visitors. How else are you going to measure how you're reaching people without these kind of numbers? Yeah, that's really interesting to even think about the funding implications that you mentioned, how you're communicating that type of engagement to your donors and potential donors, whether it be the thousands of, of minutes streamed of free educational content to your community or other forms of engagement. I think that's really, really an important point you made, Kat. And Ryan, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, it's going to be super important going forward. And I know we used to include those numbers in the ROM, and I've seen other museums include them as well. And you're seeing more and more every year. And that's, and that's great. I think it's really important because in my opinion, digital visitors are visitors too. You know, it's not like don't have an impact on what you're doing at your institution. You know? So you really need to include those numbers. But recently, my boss and I, Marquis Cote, hi Marquis, we've been looking at sort of a little past that. And there's some really great resources that I want to, sh want to shout out. But we've been looking at, it's, it's great that you quantify the engagement and all those types of things, but I've been really interested in the impact that our digital engagement, our digital content, our digital experiences actually have on people. And so I've been really following the work of Adrian Kingston, who's at Te Papa. I've been doing some thinking around this and he's got, if I'm just reading my notes here, it's beyond foot traffic and vanity metrics. So if you Google that, something's really awesome will come up. And then also Europeana has this really amazing, it's called the Impact Toolkit. And it's all about how you plan at the outset to report on impact of your digital products. And then just recently, I saw um, Simon Tanner, who is a professor at King's College London, put out a book called um, Delivering Impact with Digital Resources. So I think, yes, noting uh, how many visitors you get to your website, yeah. 
how many followers you have on social and all that kind of stuff is really great to show that you're active and that sort of thing. But I think Mm -hmm. the next step and the real opportunity is to show the actual impact of that work that you're doing. And so that's where my thinking's at on that. And and yes, I really hope every single museum in the world includes those numbers in their annual reports going forward. But I also want to see more thinking around the impact of this work. Yeah, I think that's really important to explore right now. And it has me thinking a lot about Max Anderson's pretty influential piece published called The Metrics of Success in Art Museums and how that's evolved since the time of its publishing, which I think was early 2000s. And a lot has changed since that time. And a lot has changed over the last couple of months. We only have eight minutes and I want to get to some questions from the audience. So hopefully we can keep these short and sweet. Also, I'm also going to throw on some Super Mario music just to (laughs) keep it on point. I don't know if it's too loud or not, but Elaine Hammond at the Ackland Art Museum in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina. I was going to jokingly say uh, a city in North Carolina that I can pronounce, but then I botched the pronunciation of Carolina or uh, North Carolina. Um, but Elaine wants to know what strategies do you use to streamline content creation and capture from departments that don't usually participate much in social media? That's a great question. I was saying in the, the first week of us working remotely, it was coming in like a fire hose of content ideas trying to get out through a pinhole because there's only so many times you can post a day. So what we did with this NCMA recommends and this package that I keep talking about with all of the different content pieces, those come from the different departments. And so we just have Google Docs everywhere to have people put all of their ideas in one place and then we can see where they're matching up, what we can package together, how is this relating? So that's been awesome. And then they're still creating stuff. They're still having work to do. And it's been great not having the marketing and communication team having to come up with everything, which Mm -hmm. can sometimes happen. So definitely be leaning on your teammates. And Google Docs is one of the (laughs) best ways to do it right now. But yeah. Well, let's, let's jump into another one. So this one's from Liliana Makova at the Yale University Art Gallery in New Haven, Connecticut. Liliana asks, as people with different cultural backgrounds, worldviews, and everyday realities will be accessing the content we produce, we must remain aware of how it might sound to them and how something might seem totally benign to us could be perceived as insensitive by others. How do we produce thoughtful content without making too many assumptions about our audiences? Ryan, do you have a... Whoa. Oh, I thought Kat was going to get this one. Yeah, okay, sure. You really need to look at who your audience is. And there's a lot of metrics available that you can pick and pick out like where people are coming from and what languages they speak and things like that. You're never going to be 100% accurate all the time. And and so make sure that you're taking a data-driven approach and and looking at um, all of the numbers you can glean from platforms and, and dashboards and things like that to try to make those decisions. Great. And we have a question from... Liza Holien at the the Charleston Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. We have decided to pause our social media live content out of sensitivity to the gravity of this past week. Do you think that is wise or necessary? It really just varies on where you are, what is happening in your area, what they depend on your museum for. I would say if there's no way to not address it, address the situation talk about what you know again don't make any promises that kind of thing but do keep in mind that with everything else on social media it is nice to see other content and content that can be an escape even if it's just like a nice picture that this museum is thinking of you or something like that engaging with other area museums where the museum bouquet was a great example. So if you still want to be posting, there's Mm. definitely plenty of subject material and sentiments and all of that that you can. If it has come that maybe your job has been furloughed or something, or you have been directed to stop, I think that pinning a tweet to the top Mm. that just says, here's the website for more information, social media is not going to be monitored or updated at this time, that you need that but yeah it's totally it depends on so many different factors but if you can cut down on the content do it every other day but it is nice to log on and see something other than 
other than the headlines. Thank you. Thank you. That's really valuable advice. And I know we only have a couple more minutes. So I just want to mention after this webinar, we're going to compile everyone's questions and ideas and solutions and a lot of the, the names that Ryan was mentioning for further investigation. Uh, we're going to gather all of this into one living document. We're going to share it with the museum art and cultural community. Uh, feel free to share your thoughts here in the chat box or email them over or tweet them out. I'm super confident that any questions that you may have will be able to be answered by someone in this community. I know there's hundreds, if not thousands of questions that are unanswered that need to be answered and will be addressed in due time. And the fact that you're here shows that you're taking pro proactive steps you're curious, you're hungry for new ideas and, and for inspiration, and you're taking a proactive step in preparing your museum. We're all in this together, and we're all going to get through this together. Thank everybody for joining us today. And we have one last question for our special guest, and that is, can you leave us with one big or small or medium-sized idea that we can bring back to our organizations during this time? Ryan, can you, can you start us off? Yeah, I think so. Okay. This was like the toughest thing. I was thinking about this for a couple of days. And I think just to go along with the theme of this whole webinar is, is to just be mindful of your community, be mindful of their needs, be mindful of what you can deliver to them. And don't be worried about saying no. Uh, don't be worried about saying no to internal pressures and ideas from colleagues and things like that. If you're working with your digital presence, you know your community well, and your colleagues may not. So it, it's a good idea to make them aware, but also back up your decision to, to say no with, with why. And just be aware that it's okay to not do everything all the time and to not compare yourself to the other big museums out there and, and that sort of thing. It's really all about community right now, I think, and doing right by our community. So don't be worried about saying no. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, awesome. And Kat Harding. Yeah, I think my, the big like idea for me is just to stay in touch with your coworkers, your community, all of us. This group has just been such an amazing resource for me and sounding boards, people I can vent to. It's truly some of my best friends. So Keep in touch with your coworkers, your management, your community, the audiences that you serve. Reach out for literally whatever you need. Someone will be able to help. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Kat. And thank you for that, Ryan. I really appreciate you spending the hour with us today. I know that we've been able to reach over 3,000 people that have tuned in and asked questions and are an active participant in this community globally. And I thank you for sharing some advice and guidance and inspiration. I hope all is well in your lives. And I hope all is well with your friends, family and community. And I hope to catch up soon. And thank you again. And thank you to everybody who's joined us. I send you the best. I wish you best of health. And I hope to see everyone again soon. Thank you.